Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Stephen Fine. He's a Hergen professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University, and he's also the director of the YU Center for Israel Studies and of the Israelite Samaritans Project. His new book is The Samaritans, A Biblical People. Professor Fine, thanks so much for sitting down with us again. Oh, I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you. So maybe the average person has heard of the phrase, the Good Samaritan. Can you tell us who the Samaritan people are and how they've adapted over the last millennia? Well, you know, we're used to thinking about uh, Good Samaritan hospitals and uh, Good Samaritan laws. And those people who read the New Testament avidly know that the Good Samaritan is a person, he's a character in um, one of Jesus's stories. Samaritans have been around since biblical times. They date themselves to the tribes of uh, Joseph um, and to the tribe of Levi. Um, They were very numerous in the ancient world. And over their very long history from biblical time to the present, Um, They've lived in a lot of places. There were some in southern Italy, and there were some in Greece, and there were some in Egypt, and there were some in Damascus. Their center is in the biblical city of Shechem, or Shechem, um, which in the Roman period became uh, Neapolis, which under Islam became uh, Nablus. And they were there for all of those periods. The amazing thing about the Samaritans um, is that they have a a vast literature and now considerable archaeological remains to show their history literally from the time of the Bible um, until now. The problem is that over that very long period, um, they were enemies to um, almost everybody. And so the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, destroyed their holy place on their holy mountain, Mount Gerizim, as part of the centralization after the Hasmonean War. Um, Romans didn't give them the same rights that they gave Jews and um, persecuted them. Byzantines continued along the same line. Muslims were not quite sure whether they were people of the book or not. And that's haunted them all the way through their history. Um, And then into modern times, going through this process, there were 130-something Samaritans left uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's a real story of a biblical people becoming a micro-nation. And then in the 20th century, something began to click because with the renewed interest by European, mostly British Protestants, and then their adoption by the Zionist movement, the Samaritans began to grow again. They're a community that maintains its tradition going back millennia, 
they are the other Israelites. If the Jews are the Judeans and the Samaritans come from Samaria, both of them claim to be the keepers of the Torah. And then there's the third component, the newest one, the um, Israel of the spirit as opposed to Israel of the flesh, the Christians. And so all of that dynamic comes together in the Western perception of these people and in their own development over the astonishing 3,500 years of their history. So was there a specific reason why originally they were they were hated, they were ostracized by Jews, Muslims, and Christians? Samaritans make a claim for themselves, and that is that their holy mountain, Mount Rizim, is the mountain of blessing. It's the house of God. And thus, not that awful place, as they used to call it, to the south in Jerusalem. And so there's a real religious competition between these groups that plays out um, in mostly in animosity for, for much of the history. Now, that's not true because by the second and third centuries, uh, rabbis say things like any of the commandments that the Samaritans keep, they keep better than we do. But as competition develops, as the relationship develops, the Samaritans are in the position of being the adjacent outsiders. In other words, they're not Jews, but they're Israelites. They're not Israelis, but they're not Palestinians. In fact, today they have the identity cards of both Israelis and Palestinians in their enclave atop Mount Rizim and the community near Tel Aviv. There are two communities is um, mainly Israeli. It's completely Israeli. Um, the enmity is theological and they fit into no one's categories except for Jews. For Jews, they are biblical renegades. For Christians, who should like him, like them because, you know, they're the good Samaritan. Um, they're objects for conversion. For Islam, are they people who should be protected or are they idolaters? Uh, since the third century, uh, Jews had claimed that they pray to idols, to a dove on top of Mount Grisim, which is completely not true, but Mount Grisim is a very high mountain feels like a bird's nest above Nablus. And so you can see how that myth would develop. If they're idolaters and they haven't converted to Islam, maybe they should be killed. So in 1842, at one of those moments of insecurity in the Ottoman Empire, locals in Nablus decided to kill the Samaritans if they wouldn't convert to Islam. Well, most of them had. I point that out. Most people in that region have some Samaritan blood. Um, and the folks in Nablus took it seriously because 100 years earlier, the community in Damascus had been decimated uh, in a similar kind of event. And so the remnants left Damascus and came to live in Nablus. And so they were well aware that getting killed is a real possibility. Happily, 
the British consul and in uh, Jerusalem had taken a uh, interest in them, and somehow, through whatever channels, they got to the chief rabbi of the of Jerusalem, the first chief rabbi, a fellow named Abraham Gagin, and they got him to write a letter to the Turkish authorities that said that the Samaritans are Israelites who believe in the Torah of Moses, which was enough to save them. Now, having been saved by the Jews from being destroyed, the relationship between these communities spent 50 and 100 years warming and becoming, in the end, friendly, extremely friendly. And so our volume and the larger project that it's part of, which is a, a documentary and a traveling exhibition and even a cookbook, is about bringing this culture, this history, this set of relationships over time into contemporary conversation about the history of all of the periods that our book covers, which start with the Bible and continues until yesterday. Lots of people complain about Orientalism, but it's that Orientalism that saved the Samaritans from destruction. Well, thank you so much for that background. Um, I think it's really fascinating, as you noted, uh, bringing that history through a contemporary lens, because I think a lot of folks probably might think of this population as sort of stuck in a biblical era. Um, so you write that this is a book of memories preserved by Samaritans, Jews, Muslims, and Christians from the time of Moses to the present. Uh, I'm curious, how did you go about collecting all of these stories over such a wide-ranging period? There's The literature is vast. For 150 years and more, Western scholars have found the Samaritans fascinating. And so there is a vast secondary literature relating to every aspect of their culture, from contemporary marriage patterns to the Bible and everything in between. The scholarship, however, seldom reached outside a very small group of people who fell onto the Samaritans for one reason or another and, and found it cool and decided that they would study it. It very seldom reached into the mainstream. So there's a lot of this stuff published, but there's more. I, I'm fortunate. I, I studied with the founder of the field of Jewish folklore, a, a man named uh, Dov Noy. And he did a short volume called Legends of the Samaritans. And in it, he collected a series of stories for the Israel Folklore Archive related to every aspect of their lives and as they tell the stories themselves. So that was the basis for organizing the 24 articles in this book around stories, around primary sources. And so some of them are, are, are basic, like biblical texts that talk about Samaritans or Talmudic texts that talk about Samaritans. But we looked for the stories. In every case, let's talk about and not theorize about. Let's hear what people say about them and what they say about other people. 
And so each of the articles is a reflection on one particular source. And so whether it's a Samaritan history by a fellow named Abu Afat that goes from the entry into the land of Israel until the Middle Ages, or a later history written by Samaritans that goes into the 20th, or whether it's a section from a from uh, Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad, or the itinerary of Benjamin of Tudela, who came and saw them and watched them and wrote a lot about them in the high Middle Ages, we have a vast amount of material. But there's one more bit, and that is we as a team went to Mount Grisim and collected stories from contemporary Samaritan elders that hadn't appeared before. And we collected them and we asked them, what story would you like to tell your grandchildren? And we whittled it down and came up with seven stories that are really evocative. Some of them are historic. Some of them are sort of fantasy. Some of them are about these people, some of them about their ancestors. An amazing collection that follows the life of the Samaritans and by accident, quite by accident, covers all of the issues of, of contemporary Samaritan religion, holidays, the synagogue, language, interaction with Jews and, and Muslims. All the issues that are important to them today, we, we found new stories and, and turned them into videos, which will be a centerpiece of, of our exhibition. Uh, and they're beautiful. And so those stories became jumping off places as well. And so while we may start with texts from the Bible or from the Quran, we end up with elders who are functioning and living and thriving in our own time and that we were able to preserve at least on film and then in writing. You were able to record that. I mean, that's part of the beauty of recording stories is, um, you know, you try and get them from elders so that you can preserve that piece of their memory. The amazing piece for me is that our filmmaker, Moshe Alafi, has done what no one has done before, where I've always been friendly with the community um, since I was in college. The fact is that Moshe embedded himself with the community over a five-year period. So he has been able to bring to us a level of, of depth in our, in our documentary, which is called, again, The Samaritans of Biblical People, or in our volume, which is a truly amazing thing because it really does cover this vast range of human experience. There's an intimacy that I've tried to preserve. We've been able through friends who are amazing photographers and through Alafi's work to collect images of men and women and children living their lives that our friends on Mount Grisim and in Cholon, our Samaritan friends, are going to look at with, with great pride. And more importantly, their children will look at it with great pride. And hopefully people around the world will, will read it and think 
gee, these people are interesting. Their story is interesting. I can learn something from my own world from this series of encounters, both warnings of how not to behave and happily the happy ending of the at least one of the 2,000-year-old enmities ending. And so Jews and Christians and Muslims and people who don't define themselves as any particular religion came together with Samaritans and wrote articles in our volume that are meant for anybody who finds this subject interesting, including academics. So you mentioned uh, among some of those observations of Samaritans that you collected, you mentioned writers like Mark Twain. Um, How exactly were Samaritans depicted by Anglo travelers like Twain? And how do you think this contributes to Westerners' modern understanding of Samaritans? Westerners started to come to visit um, during the 19th century. The most important visit was clearly that of the um, Prince of Wales in the 1850s. Um, The Prince of Wales, when he came in 1862, was accompanied by a major photographer on his trip through the Near East. And so he took a photograph of the Samaritan's most prized possession, a Torah scroll that they believe was copied shortly after the death of Moses. It's their icon, their connection to biblical history, and began to spread the fame of this artifact. Western biblical scholars thought about it, decided it wasn't as old as it seemed, but that didn't stop the aura of this object from from growing and becoming in, in Western culture. Now, all of this is part of that European Oriental interest, and it's a part of Protestant Bible interest, going to the Holy Land, seeing it through your own eyes, reading the Bible through your own eyes. And so images of the Holy Land, which were circulating and still circulate, often included, in most cases included, a visit to Nablus to see the Samaritans. Again, we have come to treat those visits with a certain kind of jaundiced eye. What what people often miss is that the Samaritans manipulated and used that new reality to create friends around the world, to create business opportunities for consumer items to create scriptoria practically, to copy books for Western clients, and to maintain their balance in a world where they didn't have any. American Protestants came to the rescue to provide food and sustenance, and even a school in the late 19th century. The Zionist movement came after and created a whole infrastructure for the survival of the Samaritans. But Mark Twain writes about it when he 
came on his trip to the Holy Land. And on his trip to the Holy Land, he tells us how he visited, what he did when he was there. He provides a great deal of uh, information that became the model for Western pilgrims for the rest of the century. People don't often recognize that Mark Twain's most popular book in his own time was not Huckleberry Finn, as it is for us today. It was The Innocents Abroad. And so people who went to Europe, people who went to Palestine, took his book in their pockets, read it before they left, and then enacted his visit. And so it became a standard stop to go to the synagogue to see the Samaritans who Twain says, you know, you look at these people and they look like mastodons, meaning human fossils from another era. His audience swallowed that, looked at the images that were being created for them of the Samaritan high priest standing next to the scroll of Obisha and perpetuated it and perpetuated into the present. Um, we have in the book a series of photographs that go back to the 19th century and go to the present of Samaritans standing next to their holy books. Now, let me just point out that while we may look at that and say, aha, this is 19th century Orientalism, this is like Curtis picture photographs of, of, of Native Americans, the Samaritans look at the same photographs. And I can tell you, hang them with pride in their homes and look at them and say, this is our holy book and this is our holy priest. And it's become an icon within the community to the point that young Samaritan boys and girls now take photographs next to the scroll and they hang them up in their houses. It's become part of their local tradition, which is just utterly fascinating and cool. This is a good example of the Samaritans taking categories that we think we're very smart about in Western culture and in our, in our contemporary scholarly world and forcing us to rethink them. That's really fascinating hearing how Twain sort of set that blueprint and then how the Samaritans themselves uh, used his his media exposure, essentially. Um, can you tell us about the Passover of 1968 and how it contracted to previous Passovers for Samaritans, particularly 1967? Um, Passover is their holiday. According to the Armistice Agreement of 1949, the Samaritans in Israel were allowed to cross over into um, Jordan once a year at Passover to go to their holy mountain to do their sacrifice. Now, a very small community, this is when communities, when the community regrouped together, came back together, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, got together during the week of Passover, or for as they have it, Passover followed by the festival of, of unleavened bread, matzah. They, they divide the two. And they come together. And it was a startling event 
because the Israeli team were fully integrated into Israeli society and had money from the Israeli government to publish books and would then develop their own neighborhood with the help of the Israeli government and on and on and on, and were doing rather well. And the folks in Nablus were impoverished. And so the Ministry of Religious Affairs in Israel actually sent each Samaritan family that crossed the border with money so that every to use as support for the community for much of the following year. So the Samaritans crossing the border were more than just the family, which that's not enough, and not and more than just the sacrifice, if that wasn't enough. They were providing economic well-being for a community that was starving. More than that, by 1966, the Jordanians had figured out that the young people of the community had reached the age of 18 and that the, the young men and the young women were both serving in the Israel Defense Forces. And so they barred anybody who was an Israeli soldier from coming on Passover. Now, I point out that these people took their job seriously. Um, one of the leaders of the community uh, what, that was an artilleryman in the Israeli army the same fellow became the vice president of Israel government coins and medals. These people really made it in a way that they didn't expect. And so the Jordanians who caught this blocked all of the young people from coming to Mount Gerizim. That caused trauma for the entire community. Well, in 1967, then, they looked at each other and said, what are we going to do? We're going to disappear. This is the end. Um, the community, we hear from stories told to us that we recorded, broke into jubilation when they realized that the Israeli army had arrived. But the modern Jewish national movement saw the Samaritans and sees the Samaritans as Israelites who never went into exile. And so when Passover came the next year, it was a big deal. The people who showed up for the Passover event included high levels, high level officials of the Israeli government, included scholars from all over the world. It became a almost a covenant ritual with uh, to the point that the Israeli government post office. The Postal Service issued commemorative stamps with first with, with special seals for people to buy when they went up there. And Samaritans published little pamphlets explaining what was going on. The governor of, of Nablus, the Palestinian, came to the event. And since then, it's become an institutionalized part of the, the, the national calendar. The Samaritans, from their part, look upon their Passover as literally the ultimate covenantal experience. And the level of, of fervor, the level of excitement, the level of electricity, which we captured in our documentary and could talk about in the book, is, is truly intense. And one of the wonderful things we were able to catch in the documentary is Samaritan women, who don't usually get heard about these sorts of things, describing their 
ecstatic relationship to this Passover, which as, as one who's seen the Passover sacrifice, even we tourists could see it, could feel it, could watch it. Um, and in our exhibition, everybody will be able to go into it um, in, a, in an installation which is full size, where you can walk in and watch the Passover sacrifice. Um, the Passover sacrifice is, is indicative. It's their window to the world. Uh, and that began in the 19th century, but it developed steroids in 1968 with new technology, with new openness, with new travel, and through the mediation of first, at first, the Israeli Samaritans who had all the Western savvy. And then later on, the Mount Grisim Samaritans who have developed that savvy and have a very complex and interesting relationship with their Palestinian neighbors. And so the window into the Samaritan world for most people is the sacrifice, and, and that's good and, and true, but there's so much more. Well, Stephen, thank you so much uh, for a wonderful book. Uh, um, and as you noted, it's put together so beautifully as well. Uh, really looking forward to more of your work. Thank you so much for inviting me to join. That's Stephen Fine. His new book is The Samaritans, A Biblical People. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.